Okay, so uh, here we go. These are the questions for uh, tonight. Dear Ajahn, why did the Buddha robe up in the morning? <laughs> I put, I put on the robe and then took his ball and robe. Did he? Did he? Okay, thank you for the great teaching. I'm not sure exactly what you're saying there, but I can, I sort of get the idea. So, robing up means that you kind of put on the upper robe. Yeah, when a, when the Buddha or a monastic goes into the village to receive alms, they put on a robe over both shoulders. Yeah, that's kind of the idea with robing up. So you're already wearing something, but you put on a proper robe on top. And then um, taking ball and robe, this would vary depending on the situation, but often that would mean that you, well, taking the ball is obvious, uh, but taking your robe might be taking a third robe. As a monastic, you have three robes, yeah, sarong, upper robe, and an outer robe. And often you would carry the outer robe with you as you go in uh, so depending a little bit on the circumstances, what that means. But something like that is the kind of usual meaning of that, that phrase. So, uh, yeah, all right. Okay, I know the Buddha didn't seem to speak about these at all, but what are the chakras? <laughs> And when the mind is energized, what are some fun things we can do with them? Okay, so chakras is a, that's a Hindu, kind of more like a Hindu spiritual thing. Ch a chakra just means a wheel, and these are kind of uh, points in the body that they use for energy flow or something like that. It's not really something we do in Buddhism. Um, so I don't know, you have to ask someone who kind of practices chakra meditation to ask that kind of question. I can't really answer that. Uh, but uh, uh, the energized mind, you can do a lot of fun things with the energized mind, but the fun things we do in Buddhism are a bit different from the fun things they do in the, the Brahmanical and Hindu teachings. Uh, so the, uh, in Buddhism, the idea is to get a mind which is energized so you can kind of see lights and these kind of things. And very often the things that you can see in your meditation, what is often called nimittas, are all kinds of stuff. Yeah, the mind can be incredibly creative, and depending on your character, you can see all kinds of things and all kinds of weird stuff in meditation. Uh, whether it is real or not is very uncertain. It really depends. Very often these things are created by the mind. Sometimes you maybe get, get glimpses into things that are, you know, maybe even past lives or uh, into other realities and these kind of things, uh, because the mind is getting very, very powerful. Uh, and that is what is really interesting. The chakras, uh, it's, you know, I don't know, but uh, this is what is interesting from a Buddhist point of view, because when you see other realms or you see past lives and these kind of things, that's where you get an idea of a larger reality. Uh, and that is important, right? Uh, this feeling that there is more to the world than what meets the eye. Uh, and then you get a f feeling for, you know, what rebirth might be and all of these kind of things. That opens up uh, an insight into a broader reality. Yeah. And sometimes people are afraid of seeing ghosts and that kind of thing. But, you know, if you have a chance to see a ghost, you should feel really lucky. <laughs> 
seeing ghosts is great because again that gives you this insight into a larger reality. So you should, if you see ghosts, say thank you ghost for coming. That's the right attitude. Huh? And then you give it some loving kindness. Usually ghosts come around maybe because they want a bit of care. Like we all, everyone wants kind of care and kindness. This is kind of what you know, runs us as human beings or any beings. So ghosts too, that, that's what they want. So share a bit of merit with them, send them some kind thoughts. And usually they will leave you alone. There won't be any problems anyway. So seeing ghosts is kind of wonderful, marvelous. So please see many ghosts. So, so, um. Okay, so dear Ajahn, could you please talk a little bit about the in-between places, between letting go of the hindrances and growing the seven factors. What this in-between place is like, the in-between place, between letting go of the hindrances and growing the seven factors. Uh-huh. How one most effectively moves from one to the other and what this feels like. Ajahn, it is good for you that you found Ajahn Brahm. It would it was good for us too. Thank you for your service and practice. Uh, much better respect. Okay, so I, th- there isn't really much of an in-between place between these things because it's like one gradually just moves into the other. And as you reduce the hindrances, the seven factors of awakening grow. These are like inverse, almost like inverses of each other. Hindrances go down and the seven factors of awakening grow. Uh, emerge from that. So uh, the more powerful the seven factors of awakening are, the less hindrances you have. Yeah, until you go all the way to deep samadhi and they are kind of completely gone as a consequence. So you can focus on one or the other. These are like two um, ways of looking at the same process. One is looking at the problems that are there, the other one is looking at the good qualities that are present. As the bad qualities go down, the good qualities go up. Yeah? And they're kind of uh, opposites of each other in that sense. So there isn't really any in-between state exactly. They kind of just work together in this way. Yeah. yeah, so moving from one to the other, again it is about you know the, the kind of main aspects of what meditation is about. And you can summarize meditation as kind of two main characteristics of meditation practice. And one is the degree of tranquility or peace that you have. And the other one is the degree of joy and happiness that you have. And both of these qualities, you want to maximize them. And as you develop your meditation, both of these qualities increase. Yeah? This is what you really want to look out for. So if you have more peace, more happiness and joy, that is always a good sign. And of course, you should also have little hindrances. Yeah? You should have a mind that feels clear. Uh, you should not have a mind that feels confused or has kind of these kind of defilements. Uh, that is always a kind of a danger sign. Uh, and if you start to feel very confused in a meditation, it's best to come out because that's kind of uh, where things can start to go a little bit wrong. So please don't go there. Uh, so uh, something like that. Uh, yeah, And then you have to develop those qualities of peace and happiness, and uh, this is where the idea of the anusatis, the contemplations, come 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 in. Uh, I talked about this a little bit at the very beginning. Yeah, the idea of uh, 
uh, rejoicing and having so many Kalyanamittas, uh, good friends on the path, starting with the Buddha, down to all your kind of ordinary friends in the spiritual life. Uh, all of those are your Kalyanamittas. Uh, and sometimes just reflecting on these things, yeah, counting your blessings in life, uh, uh, the fact that you found the Dhamma, you found all of these wonderful things. Wow, you, you know, well, we are also fortunate in a sense to find these extraordinary teachings. Uh, and uh, then you kind of uh, feel this sense of joy and happiness because of that. Uh, you rejoice in the goodness in your life, how you have lived very well for a long period of time. All of these things are worthy of rejoicing in. All right. Dear Ajahn, when the monks took the rag robe used to wrap the dead bodies without it being offered to them, did they not break the second precept? <laughs> Just wondering with Metta. Uh, no, because um, according to the Vinaya, they are discarded things, and if you take something which has discarded, you cannot break the second precept. The second precept is about stealing, and there's only stealing if something belongs to someone. Yeah? And according to the Vinaya, a corpse has no right to ownership. This is kind of the, this is the, the downside of being dead. You can't own things anymore, so you have a problem. And also, <laughs> animals also don't really have any ownership according to the Vinaya, yeah, I mean, uh, that doesn't mean you should kind of steal the food from an animal or anything like that. Uh, but uh, it is also, so you, you can't really steal from an animal in the ordinary sense either. It's really about human beings. Uh, and that's kind of, it's interesting because, um, you know, as in the monastic community, uh, one of the things that we are supposed to do, if someone breaks a precept, it is our job to try to get them out of that uh, thing they have done, yeah? And there are some kind of interesting examples. One of the examples is the example of uh, some monk who he found something, uh, a kind of valuable cloth on the, gr on the ground somewhere. This is a kind of ancient story. And he thought, yeah, valuable cloth. And he took it, intending to steal it. Yeah, and then he went to the Buddha after all. I thought, oh, I, you know, he realized he made a mistake. He went to the Buddha or to some vineyard teacher and said, oh, I stole this cloth. I have committed an offense. I'm no longer a monk. And then the monk said, wait. Yeah, you don't know yet whether you're a monk or not. And then he went out of his way to find this person who had lost this valuable cloth. And he asked him, well, you know, did you, what was your relationship to this cloth at this point? And he said, well, at that point I had already given it up because I consider it lost. Well, in that case you haven't committed an offense because the cloth was already ownerless. So this is what I mean. The vinaya, the monastic vinaya, is almost like a legal document. Uh, the kind of very clear limits to when you actually breach, uh, commit an offense, etc. So in this case, no stealing here. So you are, that monk was okay. All right. Dear Ajahn Brahmali, getting rid of resentment... Uh, is it about changing our attitude or perspective towards others? Or also include physical distancing for method one to four? Method four seems that we should only wish the person well from afar. Is it due to avoid uh, to step on the snake's head, the danger? Thank you. Um, yes, it is very much about changing our attitude and perspective towards others. Yeah, very much what it is about. It's about learning to see the good qualities in others, rejoicing in the good qualities, uh, and also about uh, 
having compassion for someone with bad qualities, uh, because bad qualities are painful and negative and uh, have all these problems with them. Uh, uh, physical distancing, yeah, sometimes it is useful to have a bit of physical distance. Uh, if you find someone very difficult, uh, then if you have too much contact with them, uh, then sometimes you, it's very hard to restrain yourself. Uh, yeah, and you lose your perspective, you lose your ability to have metta and compassion because it's just too much, too much contact. Uh, so sometimes it is good to have a bit of distance, and that distance can give you a bit of perspective, and then you can change your attitude through having distance to someone. Uh, that is always a useful, not always, often, sometimes a useful thing to do, having that physical distance. The fourth method about being uh, compassionate, uh, it seems like you, uh, you're wishing the person well from afar. Uh, yes, and that is kind of interesting, and it might well be, as you suggest, that it is easier to have compassion rather than being too close to someone who is very difficult in that way. Yeah? So it may be that uh, actually that is kind of the point there, that you want to have some distance to be able to do that. Uh, if someone is too much in your face, it can be hard. Uh, um, so, uh, but sometimes it can also be good to be present. Yeah, if you have compassion for someone, you want to help them. Uh, so there might also be a little bit of contact may also be good. Uh, so it's, again, it's a matter of finding balance in these things. Uh, yeah, and then you can, uh, hopefully, you can kind of get these things, just get that balance right, uh, so to speak. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I hope that makes sense. Okay, dear Ajahn Brahmali, would uh, when you explain the simile where you go on four legs and see the good qualities and another to forgive, uh, it really drove the point that without doing that uh, we don't have a solace. It is more of our release, our our own good. Uh, thank you for your Dhamma teachings. Um, Yes, I think that is basically right what you're saying. Yeah, this is about finding the kind of the solace is uh, actually, you know, you are the one who benefits from seeing the good qualities of another. That's exactly what you are, probably what you are saying here. So uh, it is exactly for your own good. But it's not just for your own good, it's also for the good of the other person as well. And this is one of those great things about the Dhamma, when we practice it in the right way, it is beneficial for everyone. This is what is so beautiful about that. So when you see the good qualities in others, basically you are encouraging those good qualities. That's a kind of a beautiful gift to give to people around you. All right. What is the most beautiful, awe-inspiring, memorable thing you have witnessed in the forest in the in uh, 25 plus years as as a forest monk? <laughs> what is the most beautiful, awe-inspiring, mem- memorable thing you have witnessed uh, in the forest in the 25 years of forest like you? Um, not sure what you mean by forest, whether you mean the animals or whether you mean ghosts or that kind of stuff. I'm not sure exactly. Yeah. But uh, with, with animals, some, you know, animals are very interesting because um, when you are peaceful with the animals, the animals are 
peaceful with you. And sometimes you have kind of strange things happening with animals in the, in the forest. Uh, not, nothing kind of extraordinary, but kind of ordinary uh, strange things. Uh, and uh, one of my encounters, this is quite a few years ago now, one of my encounters was with a kangaroo. And I was sitting on my walking path uh, and uh, I was eating my lunch on the walking path. Uh, and I was sitting on one end and there's a kangaroo. I can't remember seeing this kangaroo before. It comes onto my walking path and it starts walking towards me. I'm sitting eating lunch. I'm wondering this kangaroo coming closer and closer, walking, uh, and it has a very kind of strong samadhi focus on my bowl. Yeah, kind of very. <laughs> It's very clear what this kangaroo is after. It comes closer and closer and closer. And it, this is usually wild animals are a bit scared of human beings, but this animal wasn't scared at all. And I think this is one of the, the consequences of living with kindness among animals. It comes all the way up to me, like literally all the way up to me. I'm eating. And then it starts to look into my bowl. <laughs> yeah, with a. <laughs> And uh, then I, okay, I put my hands over the bowl. I'm not kind of, I'm, I'm not ready to share my food in that way with a kangaroo, right? It's about to put its head into the bowl. Eh? So I put my hands over my bowl. Eh? And when I do that, uh, it takes its little front legs, yeah? And it places its front legs on my hands, trying to pull my hands apart. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I was, I was in shock. I was kind of, <laughs> this kangaroo is like, getting really cheeky. <laughs> So, uh, and, and, uh, but in a, sense, in a sense, it was nice because I felt there was a kind of almost like a trust there. It's not we're no longer afraid of you. I don't know. It kind of, in one sense, it was actually quite nice. It was, it's a weird feeling. Yeah. But uh, so I wasn't really ready for that kind of, that was going a bit too far. So I, okay, so I got off my scene. I had to literally push this kangaroo off my walking path. Yeah, okay, come back later, I said to this kangaroo. Yeah. That was kind of, uh, kind of astonishing. Yeah. And uh, sometimes animals become very, very peaceful with you in the monastery in, in this way. Yeah. So these are the sort of things that you, uh, you see. There's nothing kind of very remarkable. If to have really remarkable things in the monastery, then you have to have uh, people with extraordinarily powerful minds. Yeah. And uh, like the stories you hear of Ajahn Gandha and these kind of people, uh, where kind of really exceptional things happen. Uh, but uh, that's already, for me, that was quite, uh, you know, quite uh, kind of nice and a kind of a feeling that you're living in harmony with nature in a sense, I suppose. All right, let's go on to the next one here. Dear Ajahn Ramali, I feel you can really start dropping all pleasure of the sense world once you have a good meditation abiding, isn't it so? Uh, yes, so uh, that is exactly right. So once the meditation is going well, then it's kind of easy to drop your interest in the pleasures of the senses. But remember, it is kind of it goes both ways. Yeah, very sometimes to be able to access the good meditation, you have to drop that interest a little bit already, yeah? because that interest it also what blocks you from gaining access. Is what I was saying in the beginning, as long as we are interested in the world of the five senses, it is the mind goes out to those five senses, because it is about what is outside. Yeah? It is seeing, hearing, everything is outside. And if, as long as you are attached to those things that are outside, you cannot both let go of that to go within and be attached at the same time. You have to make a choice, one or the other. So this is true. So once you do have a deep state of meditation, then you kind of you, you let go of these things quite easily. But even just to get there, sometimes we need to contemplate that world a little bit. 
and the more you, this is why these things kind of build up together. You let go a little bit, and that deepens your meditation. And because your meditation deepens, you gain more understanding of that world, the drawbacks. You let go a little bit more, then your meditation deepens a bit more. Yeah, so they kind of build up together, and then the joy starts to arise. And because you get the inner joy, it can, you have an alternative happiness that is more powerful and more interesting than the world outside. It makes it easy to let go again. Yeah? So this is how it works. And this process is also very, there's also a lot of insight as part of this process. Because what you are doing is you're actually understanding the, uh, the problem of the external world. Yeah, you're, you're understanding the, the suffering inherent in the external world. This is why you can make that shift. That's why you can let go. Letting go always comes from understanding the problem in something. People often ask, how do you let go? How do you let go? Well, that's how you let go. You understand that there is a problem. It becomes no longer interesting. And when it's no longer interesting, you let go. This is how it works. So yeah, there's always insight. Every time you become more peaceful... The reason you become more peaceful is because you have let go of something. The body, the senses, the will, the thinking, whatever it is. And because you are more peaceful, when that is gone, you can understand some of the suffering inherent or the dukkha inherent in that thing you have let go of. So every time you become peaceful, ask yourself why, what's going on, what did I let go of? And that is where insight happens. Small insights to begin with, but then they deepen as you go deeper. Yeah. <coughs> okay, okay, okay. So, next one. Dear Ajahn Brahmali, can you kindly use the Potapada or the five methods of resentment to describe, deal with the Ukraine and Russia? <laughs> so, yes, of course, you can, you know, the, these things are useful for everything, yeah? Ukraine and Russia and absolutely everything. So, what are we seeing there? We're seeing a war, yeah? And so, what, how you deal with it is that you, first of all, you see all of this. Uh, soldiers yeah, invading, coming, invading another country. Yeah. And uh, the first thing to remember is many of these soldiers don't even want to be there, probably. Yeah? They have kind of taken up a job in the military. That was obviously not a very wise move to begin with. But sometimes you do that because you haven't got any alternatives. Yeah? There may not be any other job available. Or your family was in the military, so you kind of follow along the family tradition. There's all kinds of reasons people just blindly follow along, don't really know what they're doing here. Yeah? And then suddenly one day you find yourself in a war. Yeah, the government says, go to war. And you can imagine you're a young man, or perhaps a young woman, I'm not sure how many women are part of this, but uh, you know, you're a young person and you're sent to war. You don't want to kill anyone. You don't want to hurt anyone. And you find yourself kind of forced to do all kind of stuff which is really unpleasant. There's very good grounds for having a lot of compassion for you know, for, even for the soldiers, even though they do bad things sometimes, uh, have compassion for them because very often they don't want to do what they, what they are asked to do. Of course, it's easy enough to have compassion for the Ukrainians. Yeah, imagine civilians being bombed and kind of, you know, you, the world around you is falling apart. I mean, that's fairly obvious. I don't think I need to kind of say too much about dealing, how to deal with that. Uh, 
But then you look at, that's the ordinary soldier. Then you look higher up the hierarchy, huh? yeah? and you look at kind of maybe the officers in the army and the generals or whatever. Huh? And they too, in a sense, have been just being conditioned over a lifetime to believe that war is a good idea. Yeah? Invading another country, killing is kind of a good idea. And they are just blind. They don't know what they're doing. They're conditioned by the army instead of being conditioned by the Buddha. Yeah, conditioned by the Buddha is a good idea. Conditioned by the army is a bad idea because that's what the army teaches you. It teaches you to do bad things. So, you know, this is the problem. Yeah, they don't know what they're doing here. They're doing really bad stuff. They're causing a lot of suffering for others. They're causing even more suffering for themselves. So uh, this is why, how you can have compassion all around, because everyone is in the darkness, everyone is blind, and we're causing suffering for each other without really understanding what we're doing. In some ways, the people who get killed may in some ways not be as badly off. If you are killed, okay, if you have been a good person, you probably have a, you know, a good destination afterwards anyway. It's probably not such a big deal. But the person who does lots of bad stuff, yeah, general in the army ordering people to kill, who knows where they're going to get reborn? Probably in a very bad destination. So, you know, sometimes things are a bit different from what we think. And then you can go to the very top. Yeah, you have someone like maybe the president of Russia, someone like Vladimir Putin or whatever. He also doesn't know what he's doing. Yeah, no idea, driven by greed, driven by ego, driven by all kinds of ideas about you know, making Russia proud, or I don't know what it is, whatever the reasons are, all kind of misguided reasons for doing this. And ultimately, you can have a sense of compassion even for the people at the very top of the hierarchy, because they too have no idea what's going on. And then, no need to get angry with anyone, yeah? no need to get upset, because it's not going to help anyone to get angry with these things. This is the weird thing about the world. We cause so much suffering for each other all the time. Yeah, in the past, we have been in that position. Every one of us have probably been in the army in the past, been a soldier, killing other people. And if you were there, if, imagine seeing yourself in the past life as a soldier, killing someone. Imagine seeing that for your, about yourself. It would be terrible. It would be incredibly hard to see. But that is probably the reality. And in the same way that you should have compassion for yourself because you were misguided enough to be a soldier, in the same way you should have compassion for these soldiers in the present day. In the same way that you see the Ukrainian people being, you know, killed in the war. This has happened to every one of us being killed in the war in this way. So you have to have compassion all the way around, understanding that we have been the perpetrators, we have been the victims, we have been in all positions in the society. Yeah, we have been... And, and this is a very beautiful way of thinking about the world. I often think of myself as in the past. I've, of course I've been a woman in the past. Of course I've been a national of all nations on this planet. Growing up here, growing up there. And once you see that all of these things are within you, yeah, that all these nationalities, all the various races in the world, all, all the the genders, handicapped, being intelligent, being stupid, being educated, being uneducated, uh, being everything, yeah, all of these things are already part of us. It's already inside of us. Uh, and unless we make an end of this path, it's going to happen again in the future. Uh, and once you kind of uh, you, um, identify with everyone in the world in that way, uh, 
then it starts to become easier to have compassion everywhere, understanding everywhere, not discriminate against everyone, treat everyone in the same way. That is kind of the ideal. And this is, so you have to even see yourself in the footsteps of those Russians. Yeah, What if you were in that in that situation. Why would you be there? Well, the reason you be there is you've been conditioned in a bad way. Not because you are wise, not because you are you know what you're doing, but because you are blind. You're walking in darkness. So that's how you should, this is the ideal way of thinking. And then we can have more compassion all, all around. Okay. Dear Ajahn, can you please request to teach a death contemplation? I try to do it myself, uh, uh, and every time I do it, I fall asleep and slept so well. Please help. Okay. Well, maybe, maybe that's good. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe that's not such a bad thing. Yeah, I was planning to do that, but uh, tonight I just didn't feel like doing it, so I didn't do it. That's how I usually work. If I don't feel like it, I don't do it. I'm, Maybe it's a bit selfish, but that's how I work. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> but yes, I, have, I do intend to do some little bit of death contemplation uh, eventually at some point. Maybe tomorrow. We'll see how things go. <clears throat> Dear Ajahn, to take the mind off the serious stuff, okay, <laughs> can you please tell us how Buddhism is taking place in Norway? <laughs> Are the temples run by Norwegian nationals? How is the general public attitude towards it? Do you think one day you might go there and start a temple? Thank you, Ajahn. No, I don't think so. Too <laughs> I'm too lazy to start a temple. I, it's a lot of hard work to start a temple, you know. And here in Australia, Ajahn Brahm, he kind of he does all the hard work, and I kind of sit there and I kind of relax. So it's kind of handy. <laughs> so. Um, I, I don't know. The future is always uncertain. I don't, I don't make any plans, and I don't really kind of think too much ahead because you have to kind of uh, deal with things when they arise. Always be flexible. That's kind of my idea. Not try to think too much. But how is Buddhism taking place? No, I think there's a lot of interest in Buddhism in uh, in places like Norway. Uh, probably many, many, lot of similarities between Norway and Australia. Actually, in that sense, uh, it is not a very religious society, really. People are kind of post-religious. The majority of people don't have anything. Like me, when I grew up, I didn't grow up in a religious family. And where I grew up, nobody was religious. I didn't know anyone who was religious. Or if they were, they were religious in the closet because it was considered slightly shameful to be religious. That's how it was. Yeah. So it's kind of, kind of strange, isn't it? It's a very secular kind of society, at least the area that I lived in in Norway. But I think people often find that um, that is not really enough. Yeah, you can't just live for the material things in life. There's an emptiness there. And I think a lot of people, they yearn for sp something spiritual, but something which they want to reject Christianity. They want something else because they can't make sense of Christianity. That's what I felt. I couldn't make any sense of Christianity. And so I just, you know, just didn't bother with it at all. But for me, Buddhism was different. It wasn't religion in the same way as Christianity. And for that reason, for me, it was acceptable. And I think for a lot of people, if you understand what the Dhamma is about, yeah, I often discuss what actually is the teaching of the Buddha. Is it a religion? Is it a philosophy? What exactly is it? And it depends what you mean by these things. What does religion mean? Some people treat it as a religion. 
But I would say that really what Buddhism is, it's more like a psychology here. It's about learning how to use your mind in a wise way here. It's about learning how to be happy by thinking in the right way here. This to me is psychology here. It is religion perhaps in the sense that there is like a final aim that we are going for. Does that make it religion? Maybe, maybe not. I'm not sure. Um, but it really is a, a psychology in a sense, but a very positive kind of psychology. And if you look at it from that way, I think it is very compatible with uh, kind of the, the modern world and certainly the way things think about these things in, in Norway. Very, very compatible with that. So I think there's a lot of scope for Buddhism in Norway, but you have to present it in a way that people can make sense of it. This is very important. And the general public attitude towards I think, is very positive. Buddhism still has a very good name around the world. Of course, sometimes uh, Buddhists are very good at destroying that good name. We, we do, sometimes we do silly things, uh, and then we end up uh, damaging the good name of Buddhism. But uh, I think it still has generally a very good name. And uh, there is uh, a, another Norwegian monk, I don't remember him, it was a Norwegian monk who was at Bodhinyana Monastery before, uh, Ajahn Nito, Nito was his name, uh, and he is over there now, and he is kind of looking to start something in Norway. So I, I'm going to Europe myself, two days after this retreat is finished, I fly out of Australia, go straight to Europe, do another retreat in Europe, and go to a few different countries, uh, and I end up in Norway, we're going to do like a weekend retreat in Norway as well just to get people interested. Apparently this got fully booked very quickly this weekend retreat, so there's obviously a lot of interest over there. It's interesting because we, you know, the, the way the Buddhist society here, the way we work with the YouTube channel, all of that, these teachings spread around the world. Yeah? So, you know, when you go somewhere, people know about you, especially those who have an interest in spirituality. So that's kind of... A, kind of the advantage of having this way of spreading the Dhamma around the world. Uh, people get a chance to hear it even in the faraway corners. Uh, and sometimes you get letters from places where there is no Buddhism, uh, yeah? like the south of the United States where people are very kind of staunchly conservative Christians. Uh, and they kind of thank you, thank us. for Wow, thank you so much for having the YouTube channel. I'm the only Buddhist in this town. Everyone here is a kind of a fundamentalist Christian except for me. I'm the only one. Thank you for supporting me. And we kind of create an international community like that. And that's a wonderful thing to be able to do. Yeah, giving people access to, to these teachings. So yes, the answer is yes. I think there's a lot of potential in Norway. I think there's a lot of potential here, right here in Australia. A lot of potential in many countries in the Western world. So we just need to be wise in how we market the Buddhist teachings. It's all in the marketing, the packaging really matters. So get some nice packaging and then we'll, we'll be in business. Something like that. <laughs> okay. Okay, so when the Buddha recollected his past lives, was it random access or sequential? <laughs> um, because if it was sequential, the math just doesn't add up. Let's assume the first watch of the night consisted of four hours. That's 60 times 60 times 4 seconds, that's 14,400 seconds. Considering that he recollected 91 eons, uh, that is about 180 seconds per eon. 
depending on how many years or lifetimes there are in one eon, this means they regulated each life in a time scale on the order of microseconds. What's going on? <laughs> okay, so there's, there's a number of things here, and um, it is first of all, it is not clear exactly how many, how much he recollected on his night of awakening. It's not even clear that it was happened in one night. It may have happened over some time. The tradition is that it happened in one night, but I don't think there is anything in the suttas that actually say that. It may have happened over more time. Second thing, it is not clear that he recollected all of that in one go. Maybe he only recollected a few lifetimes. Maybe that was enough to kind of, uh, you know, the Buddha was pretty sharp and wise, so he may have kind of caught on about the idea of rebirth pretty quickly without having to recollect 91 eons. That may have happened later on. Yeah? If you see two or three lifetimes and you see how it all connects together, that may be plenty sufficient. So um, I would say that, uh, you know, that something else probably happened rather than this kind of recollection. And then you can see how it is sequential, right? Of course, when you remember the past, you don't remember every moment, but you remember enough to see how it hangs together. And that is really the issue here. And this is how the Buddha talks about in the, in the suttas. Yeah, when he talks about recollecting his past life, he says, I had such and such a past life, I had such and such happiness and suffering during that life, such was my food, such was the length of my li lifespan. When I passed away from there, I got reborn in this other place. There too, I had such and such food, such and such my lifespan. All, you know, so obviously he, he saw the details of what was going on. It was a very systematic kind of recollection of past lives. And then eventually he brings it up to the last life. Then I passed away from there, I got reborn here. Here is in this present life. And this is how you know that what you're doing is a real recollection of past lives. It's a systematic recollection that kind of carries, you know, shows you the whole sequence and shows you the conditionality, the causality uh, that works from one life to the next one. Uh. So uh, I think that is necessary. And I think, uh, I think the mathematics here is very impressive, the mathematics here, but uh, <laughs> I'm not sure if it quite works out in that, that way here. Uh. Okay, so we have come down to the last two questions. Ajahn, I have seen some translations that suggest mudita can be translated as appreciative joy or empathetic joy. I've also seen it explained as a precursor to metta. So when we come across a disagreeable person in body and speech, do we use mudita to see a or appreciate the good in them in order to develop metta and indeed compassion. Uh, to develop ca compassion straight up feels a little too close to pity, what you say here. Um, yes, well, mudita, the, 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 the word mudita actually does mean joy. Yeah? That's kind of the usual meaning of the word in the suttas. So you have joy, you have mudita. Uh, for example, you have the word pamoja. Pamoja is the precursor to piti in the se sequence of uh, dependent liberation, and pamoja, moja, is directly related to the word mudita, basically the same word. So this does mean joy in this sense. Uh, but in the Brahma Viharas, it has a kind of a 
it obviously is a very, very developed form of appreciative joy because the Brahma Viharas, the way they are explained in the suttas, are very, very high qualities. Yeah, the metta is spreading metta to the four directions, boundless kind of mental states without any kind of hindrances or anything holding you back. It's a very powerful and developed idea of mudita. But the basic idea, you're right, is basically appreciative joy here. Um, empathetic joy. Yeah, I'm a bit unsure about the word empathy because uh, empathy, I guess if someone else has joy and you feel their joy, so it's kind of empathetic joy. Yeah, I suppose that would uh, kind of work Yeah, if you read the joy of others. Uh, it is the empathy where you feel too much suffering, which it can be, that can be problematic. Yeah. So, um, can be explained as a precursor to metta. Yes, I think that is probably true, yeah, because uh, if you empathize with someone else's joy, you understand their happiness. If you have a friend, for example, who is very happy, and then you, wow, you feel so happy because they are happy, yeah, appreciate their own their happiness. And uh, yeah, yes, that will be very closely related to the idea of metta. But I think this is like a more preliminary level of mudita. It's not really the kind of mudita that is fully developed according in the Brahma Viharas. So, but point taken, though, that these things are kind of often interwoven with each other. You can't really disentangle them properly. Yeah. So uh, the disagreeable person, do we use mudita to see, to appreciate uh, the good in them in order to develop metta and indeed compassion? Uh, um, uh, yes, I, I suppose you can, you can do that. Yeah, you... You see the good qualities in them, and you appreciate that. I guess that can be a kind of mudita. I, you know, I, I suppose that there's different ways of doing that. The main thing is to neutralize the negative feeling. That's kind of the main point. And if you can take that all the way to even experience positive joy, then it's even better. Yeah, that's even more powerful. And then you can kind of move on to uh, feeling uh, to to uh, yeah to all of the good positive qualities. Um, for compassion, compassion is, uh, I think, uh, if it's pure compassion because the person only has bad qualities, uh, then it is much more difficult to obviously cannot really develop the mudita in that way. Because the idea of compassion is the feeling that you want to help somebody who is sick. Yeah? It's like someone is sick, for example, uh, and this is, of course, the simile used in that particular sutta. They are sick, so you want to help them. You have compassion for them. And you help them, you give them medicine, you support them. Yeah? And you feel a sense of joy in the act of helping, yeah? in the act of supporting somebody. Yeah? It is actual supporting itself that is joyful. Yeah? Helping someone else out, showing them the teaching. Okay, here is someone who is blind. Look at these teachings, practice in this way. Yeah? That is an act of compassion when you help somebody in that way. And that can give rise to joy precisely because you are helping, precisely because you are showing them a way out, helping them away, finding a way out of the, of the darkness, so to speak. Yeah. So, compassion straight up feels a bit too close, like pity. Yeah? Well, you, yes, pity is probably no good. Pity is like kind of you, almost like looking down upon somebody a little bit or something like that. Of course, that is not what we're trying to do here. But, uh, yeah, so... You know, there, I don't think there is any exact answer to these things. You have to kind of try and work these things out yourself. And there are many different ways. The teachings in the suttas are often quite general. And you use them as a general ideas and how it expresses itself in your mind. 
and maybe in one way someone else slightly different. Uh, so, uh, but all of these things sound like, uh, I think, good ideas, uh, what you're describing here. Yeah. Dear Ajahn, last year a family drama caused massive conflict between my father and I. This caused me to feel uh, hurt, angry and resentful. Uh, these feelings were unremitting and plagued me during every moment of wakefulness. I knew that for my own sake I had to find a way to overcome these negative thoughts. I decided to start... Uh, writing a list of everything that I knew I was grateful to my father for. This list grew day by day, and I realized that I couldn't be grateful and resentful at the same time. Very quickly, those negative thoughts and feelings disappeared. My, my relationship with my father has been restored. Okay, that's wonderful. So this is exactly what we have been talking about. That's marvelous. So people putting into the practice that is... Uh, Excellent. My question, where does gratitude fit in to combat resentment in the suttas with metta? So gratitude is just another one of these very positive feelings. Yeah, And you're quite right, if you have gratitude to someone, you don't feel resentment, you don't feel angry at the same time. Gratitude is another way of overcoming that, those negative feelings. Uh, and the gratitude, very interestingly, is called the very high and noble qualities in, this, in the suttas. Uh, the Buddha says ordinary people don't usually have gratitude. Uh, yeah, it is considered quite noble for even having that kind of uh, uh, feeling or that kind of emotion in you. Uh, so, yes, indeed, this is, uh, this is another way of developing joy and happiness, yeah? using gratitude as an idea. In fact, a lot of the things that we talk about when we talk about Recollecting the Buddha, there's always a bit of gratitude also involved with that. Yeah? Having teachers, someone who shows you the way, someone who shows you the path. This gratitude goes with that. It is not really completely separated from that. Because uh, yeah, this is kind of natural when you think about these things. So, very useful. And one of the things that you can do also in your meditation practice, yeah? one of the ways of developing good states in meditation, is to use gratitude as a spark to develop good qualities. Yeah? Gratitude, when you recall your Kalyanamittas, well, that can be done with a degree of gratitude. Yeah? Thank you for being my spiritual friends on this path. Thank you for making this retreat a good retreat because you are here. Uh, thank you for being a good father, as you're saying here. Uh, and uh, so that is, uh, is part of it. Uh, so I don't think these things can really be separated. They're all kind of aspects, and very often they kind of work together to some extent. Uh, and uh, then, yes, quite right, then you are purifying the mind by using that kind of perception. Uh, so that's great, yeah? So everyone finds their own way. Remember that a lot of the teachings... Uh, are the idea with many of these teachings that we have uh, here 
is to give you some guidance on how to overcome these things. But in the end, you find your own way. You use these things as a kind of general framework. But the little details in these things, you have to kind of figure them out yourself. We're all slightly different. We all have slightly different conditioning. And because our conditioning is different, the way we apply these things will be slightly different. But the main ideas still remain. The main kind of outlook is still the same. The suttas are very often like this. Yeah? If you read, for example, the Anapanasati Sutta on mindfulness of breathing, yeah, people often say there's so much missing there. Yeah, it only gives a kind of a rough outline. Yeah? And that's true. And I think that is on purpose. The Buddha gives you a rough outline so that these teachings are precisely made for everybody because we are slightly different, we apply it in slightly different ways. Yeah? So this is kind of the idea of giving a skeleton, because a skeleton then becomes something that can be used by everybody. So the suttas often lack detail, and I think that is, there's a reason for that. This is not kind of random. And sometimes you get the later traditions, they add all of these details to the suttas. Yeah, if you read something like the Visuddhimagga, for example, it gives you all the vipassana jnanas. These are the vipassana insight knowledges. These are not found in the suttas, or some of them are found in kind of skeleton form in the suttas, but only very, very marginally. And then it gets really ramped up to these enormous chapters in the Visuddhimagga. And so then, is that right or is it wrong? Well, I don't think it's necessarily right or wrong, but it's more like it may no longer be as applicable to everyone. It may be misleading in certain contexts. I think there is a reason why the Buddha does not give such details, yeah? Because the idea of not having details allows it to be more general, applicable to everyone. Once you have incredibly small details about how the path is supposed to work, what often happens is that you also read your experience in terms of what you have read. So you think, yeah, okay, Vipassana, I can see the Vipassana Nyanas. I mean, this already happens with the teachings as they are. Yeah, people read jhanas into their experiences, even though they haven't got anywhere near jhana experiences. So this is a general problem uh, in Buddhism, whereby we uh, see things that aren't actually there, and this happens. The more details you have, the more likely that is to happen. So I always like to come back to the suttas, and I find that is the best way, because that is the word of the Buddha. Anyway, that is all for tonight, so I wish you all a very good night once again, and we'll see you back again tomorrow morning here.